my name is Chris Stromland, and uh, I'm the husband of uh, Nikki Stromland here, my beautiful wife here, and, and Jacob, and, and uh, my daughter Ellie is, uh, I think, working with kids today, and then we've got two other kids in college over in Greenville, South Carolina. So uh, thank you, David, for the opportunity to share the Word of God today. We've, uh, we're partners here at Creekside. And uh, partnering together with our missional community as well to kind of reach out to the uh, Myers, Myers Road area and, and really just to focus on making disciples who make disciples and training, kind of basically training us all up to, uh, to go out to the places where we live and essentially saturate Goose Creek with the gospel. Yeah, I want to share, there's a little bit, there, there was a time in my life where uh, things weren't going so great actually. Uh, in fact, we had gone through a pretty rough, crummy years. Uh, after 9-11, we actually lost our business at, at the time, and, and as a result, we were pretty much in financial straits. Uh, we were up to our eyeballs in debt, almost to the point where they were actually harassing my grandmother uh, to, try to try to get money uh, from us at the moment. We just couldn't, couldn't make ends meet at the moment. Uh, by God's grace, he provided us a job that allowed us to begin to pay some of those bills off. But at the time, it didn't seem like it was great. Uh, in fact, it was pretty terrible. And the place that I was working, really, was a bad environment. It just not, I didn't come home uh, happy to have been at work that day. Uh, and in fact, I rarely saw my wife as a result of the hours that it, uh, that it took from me. Um, you know, and during those times, it seems like God just seems to allow things to just keep piling on you and keep piling on you. And I'll never forget, I finally decided that it was time to finally quit that job and really move out and trust God in that. And um, so I went home and I, and I told Nikki, I said, I finally quit my job today. And, and I thought she was going to be so excited and I saw tears in her eyes. And she said, I have an announcement too. We're pregnant with our third child. And I thought, oh my, you know, we tried to manufacture smiles and con comfort one another, and, uh, and obviously we were happy, uh, at, but at the same time, I was thinking, you know, deep down inside, I was wondering, how are we ever going to make it? Um, it what should have been a joyful moment. Uh, it, it was hard, and we're thinking, are we going to get through this together? Um, and it really, it, it really personified a lot of my own life, because I felt like there's so many dreams that you have, and and visions that you have of the future, when you're getting married, when you're leaving school, when you're going off into a career, and all these ideas of what it's going to be like, and we all know the realities of life hit, and they just keep piling on at times. What I didn't tell you is that during this same time, God just began to work in me, and I actually began to read my Bible for the first time, for real. I was actually digging into it. I, I remember waking up on the couch almost nightly, uh, with a, you know asleep with the Bible on my on my chest, and, and Nikki would wake me up and say, "Come to bed." I just really began to tear into it, and I, as I did, I just re began to see that Jesus said what it meant to be a disciple, to abide in Him, to really allow Him and His Word to change and transform me, and then th out of that, that I was to go make disciples. And then I read in John six and saw how Jesus, who who should have had been like the best speaker of all time. He was okay with when the disciples came to him and they said, hey, we're, we're, uh, he had like 72 disciples at that time and they were following him. And then he began to teach some hard things and we see a ton of them walk away at this point. I mean, 
here are the people that were walking literally with Jesus, seeing him do the things that he did and listening to his teaching. But when the teaching got too hard, they walked away. They turned out to be just onlookers, curiosity seekers, and essentially they were willing to be disciples as long as they could get what they needed out of Jesus and not because of who he was. Um, so for me, at this time in my life, this was certainly a crisis of faith. For me, I'm seeing God pile on, or at least I'm thinking, God, why do you keep piling on all this stuff? And, and, and yet I'm trying to follow you. Um, so the question was, am I going to commit to be a true disciple? Or am I going to commit to tepid kind of mediocrity of Christianity, which is, is there such a thing? Um, I either believed God or I didn't. Now, many of you have faced trials before. Some of you are probably in a trial right now. And if you haven't, you're getting ready to hit one. It's just the reality of life. It may be depression. It may be you're struggling with school. It might be financial struggles, the pressures of being a single parent, the pressures of raising uh, uh, your, your, your kids. It might be caring for an aging parent. It might be sickness. It might be facing retirement or some other trial that I don't even know and probably can't even identify with. But we know that these trials are real. They're scary. They're overwhelming. They're tiring. And guess what? These trials are good. They're good for us. It, it, I even struggle saying that because I struggle with that. But that's why we're going to get into the book of James today and listen to God's word. Trials are good for us. This may seem odd, but beyond that, we're actually commanded to have joy in the midst of these trials. Today we're going to kick off our study in the book of James, as, as David talked about, and hear him on this subject. Um, he doesn't waste any time getting right to the point. Uh, we are going to go through trials, he says, and they are good for us. And we are to find joy in the midst of them, because for true disciples of Jesus, listen, he will be your source of joy. He will be the power to endure. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is sure, which is foundational, and which we can build our lives upon. upon. And so we pray that we would be faithful to your word as we read the book of James today and ask that uh, you would speak through me. Lord, let me get out of the way and let your Holy Spirit do the work. May we be faithful uh, to your word in Jesus name. Amen. Let's read James 1, chapter 1, uh, verse 1 to 18. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And what is steadfastness? To be the ability to endure, to, to make it through to the end. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. I struggle with that. With no doubting. Wow. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that in a second. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat 
and withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He brought you forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. So who is James? Well, we look at this verse 1 here. Uh, it, clearly, he's a well-known leader. Uh, and how do we know that? Because he introduces himself simply as James. If I'm going to introduce myself to the people in Goose Creek, I don't just say, I'm Chris, right? They don't know me. But James, he's writing out to those that have been dispersed throughout the kingdom, outside of Jerusalem and around the Roman kingdom and possibly beyond, and he's writing to them. They've been persecuted, possibly because of the stoning of Stephen that happened in Acts 8 and then beyond that. But what was happening is this major persecution, and they were forced to flee, to flee to all these other parts. So they were foreigners in other places. And, and yet James can write to them and say, James, just interesting himself as James. So he was obviously well-known. Um, Needs no introduction. Even Paul would oftentimes in certain books when he didn't know a group of people, he had to kind of lay out, well, these are the people I know. He had to lay out credibility statements. James didn't need that. He just says James. And he says, I'm a servant of God. He was also, if you think about it, this is the brother of Jesus. James is the brother of Jesus. So imagine growing up what it must have been like to be with Jesus right there. Uh, but we also know that James is beyond that. He is a leader. He is the leader, a leader, if not the leader, of the Jerusalem church there. Um, we know that he was highly respected. Uh, Acts 26, uh, in Paul's testimony in Galatians, in his letter to the Galatians, he rec recounts how even Paul, the, the, the killer of Christians, the persecutor of Christians, when he had a, um, his conversion and began to follow Christ, what did he do? He went to, to James and to Peter to really confirm his faith, to confirm his calling. So they were the ones kind of looked upon. Even, and, and in Acts 15, I find it interesting, uh, in Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council. Now this was a major potential turning point in, the, in Christian history. And what you had was all the religious leaders and all the church planners and those that were, were basically seeing the Christian faith spread out, they came together in Jeru Jerusalem because there was this major debate in Christianity as to whether or not the Gentiles, those that were not Jews, in order to become a Christian, had to be circumcised and go through certain rituals. In other words, this is the point in time where we're finding out, is, this, is, is salvation going to be by works or salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ? And James is actually looked at at the Jerusalem Council. You'll see Peter uh, laying out. This is all that God's been doing since the beginning of, beginning of time. You see Paul and Barnabas and others begin to share. This is what God is doing in all these places of the world. And then James stands up and he says, my judgment is. And they all listen to him. Now, th 
thank God that he wasn't just an opinion maker. He based his judgment on the Word of God, which is exactly what we're trying to do today when we talk about what it means to go through trials. We're basing that not on what I have to say, but hopefully what the Word of God has to say. Uh, but I do find it significant that James is the one that is arguing against faith by works, and then yet, does anybody know what the book of James is most famous for? It's chapter 2, verse 26. Faith without works is what? Dead. Interesting that he, he would then say that. Um, Martin Luther agreed with him when he wrote that the true living faith which the Holy Spirit instills into the heart simply cannot be idle. For both of these men, a faith that does not produce real life change is a faith that is worthless. Now, he's not saying you have to work for your salvation, but he is clearly implying that if you are truly saved by Jesus, the following transformation in the Holy Spirit within us will compel you to obedience to Christ's commands. So how did James come to this conclusion? Well, James chapter 1, he's a servant of God. Um, he was clearly grew up Jewish. Uh, he was the, obviously the son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was a devout follower. He probably went to every Christian festival, went through all the rituals, did all of that. So he was clearly a follower of God, much like the religious leaders uh, of that time. And I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Michael Jr.'s little comedy bit about uh, what it was like to be James. You know, he talks about, um, uh, he says, imagine how many times that Mary said, you know, James, why don't you be more like your brother uh, uh, Jesus, you know? And, and he talks about how, um, he talks about these people in traffic that cut you off in traffic, you know, and, and you look up and you're like, oh, they must be wearing that WWJD bracelet. You know, what would James do, not what would Jesus do? And, and, uh, and he, he says this is, Mary says, do you think when Joseph asked James to pray before the meal, he ever got a little jealous? And so he bows his head and ends the prayer by, God, thank you for the food in James' name. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it had to be hard to be the brother of Jesus. You can imagine um, this, this perfect child. But did you know that as he grew into an adult, that John 7, 5 tells us that James and his brothers did not even believe in Jesus. Here, Jesus is going. He's the coming Messiah. He's out there doing miracles, and he's teaching, uh, uh, you know, about the, the kingdom of God, and yet they are the ones that don't even believe in Jesus. Uh, Mark 3, 21 even goes on to say that uh, although his family and James loved Jesus, they were actually trying to pull him away from his ministry saying that he was, quote, out of his mind. They were saying he'd gone crazy, potentially. So yet we see in verse 1, James, a servant of God, and what? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. His brother, who he was jealous of, he struggled with, and even didn't believe and thought he'd gone crazy at times. We've seen something has changed. He is now submitting to Jesus and saying, I'm a servant. That, that, that in the Greek is, means slave. I'm a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah is what he's calling him here. He's showing us a submissiveness, a humility to this person, Jesus. What changed was the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says that 
goes, shares the gospel there in verse 1 to, to 6 and then says that Jesus appeared to James and then the disciples after the resurrection. He saw his brother. He had seen him on the cross. He had been there with Mary as she cried and watched her own son being crucified. And then Jesus stood before him. I've been resurrected. Proving that he was God. Proving that he had defeated sin and Satan and death. He proved right then that he had actually paid the debt for James' sins. And this changed his life from that day forth. That's where we get James now being this amazing leader and this well-looked-to person that is looking to the Word of God and saying, I am a disciple of Jesus. Let's dive into the passage here. Verse 2. Um, after being scattered from Israel, we see that these people are out here, and he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What kind of trials would they have been going through? Imagine being a refugee, fleeing, having to flee your home, uh, your homeland. You've, they've lost their homes. They've lost their relationships. They've lost probably most, if not all, of their possessions. And not only that, they're being persecuted by those around them. And they're most likely even being persecuted by those members of their family that have dis not decided to follow Jesus. Because they're sitting here saying, my son or daughter or my brother or my wife or my, or my husband, by their faith in Jesus, is causing me to be persecuted by these people around me. If you would just stop following this Jesus, you wouldn't deal with this trial. And he, yet he says, count it all joy. James says here uh, it, it, that there should be this pure joy, this unmixed joy, not like partial anger, partial uh, joy. He's saying pure joy, filled with joy, unmixed joy. Peter agreed with him when he wrote there in 1 Peter, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Paul said the same when he wrote Philippians. Where did he write Philippians from? From prison. And yet the whole theme of the book is joy in Christ. So my natural response to James is, well, if you're saying that we've got to have joy through this trial, why and how? Well, he gets into that. So there in verse 3, we kind of begin to see the purpose of our trials. The purpose of our trials, kind of see the advantage of our trials. James writes uh, here in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, he's saying that we all know to some extent from experience that you kind of got to go through hard times to develop some strength and endurance, right? Um, that's just kind of well known. We know an athlete goes through that. We know as parents, I remember uh, my son being bullied at school. And uh, David, just so you know, that... <laughs> This was a pastor's kid that was bullying him. So, you know, just, uh, just, just remember that one day. But his pastor's kid was bullying my son, and I just wanted it to stop. Uh, I wanted to solve the problem for him. But instead, it, we coached him through it. We kind of helped him uh, go through some of the suffering while understanding how to act in Christ-like ways. And, um, and although he suffered through it, with our encouragement and enough help from us, he was made stronger for it. He gained maturity through it. Um, and steadfastness, or that ability to endure, is not the only benefit. 
if you think about what he went through, it wasn't that he uh, uh, developed the ability to endure, but he became a changed person. He was transformed in some way, and the same thing happens to us. Uh, we sort of become changed by our trials, hopefully in a good way, but that's depending on where our, we're leaning towards, right? My, my son, still to this day, has this heart for hurting people, for rejected people, and reaches out to them regularly wherever he's at because of what he went through, and God's able to use that. But So, so we see this, this uh, command that we are to have joy in those trials, um, but he also uh, tells us, in addition, that we h- how to do that. And he says, uh, first of all, in verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Proverbs 1 and 2 tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. That God is the source of all wisdom. And Philippians 4.19, you, you see in that verse 5, he says, um, and God gives generously. Philippians 4.19 says that God gives generously and supplies every need of ours according to his riches in glory but just as any father knows you don't give your child everything he asks for but also sometimes you do but you do it in the right time for his good and for his growth and God does the same thing with us so he says first of all how do we do this we ask God for wisdom but he also goes on to say down in verse 12 we're going to go come back to the rest of it but he says you want to ask God for wisdom in verse 5 but also in verse 12 he kind of lays out this also keep your hope on Jesus keep your hope on what God will complete you all know that when you lose hope it's almost like you can no longer stand it anymore but when there's this even just a glimmer of hope out there you're able to keep going and he, he promises, for those who love God, God has promised a crown, which is given for the tests you endure, having remained steadfast, able to endure under trial. If you look back to verse 3, it says here, um, for you know that the testing of your faith, what? Produces steadfastness. This language here means that it's God is literally working to produce in you a steadfastness. A staying power of such. A perseverance that he calls steadfastness. But, but I want you to understand something here in this language. He's, he's saying that it's not just you working to remain steadfast. It's God at work to keep you steadfast. Another way to put it is this. This is not so much you proving to God that you are genuine. But God proving to you that you are genuine. And it's not so much that you have proved yourself, but God proving that you are approved by Him. And His work will be completed. Verse 12 says, you will obtain the crown of life, eternal life, because of your faith in Jesus and His work on His behalf, that resurrected life that obtained it for you. And this is how we're able to count it all joy through trials. But he does kind of list a few prerequisites here that are kind of difficult. So we want to jump into those and understand, verse, starting in verse 6 to 8.
but let him ask. So if, if, you're, if you're going to uh, ask God for wisdom, he says, let him do so in faith without doubting. Well, have you ever doubted? <laughs> have you ever struggled and wrestled with the circumstances you see around you? Absolutely. We all do. In fact, it's not unnatural to question God. We even see the psalmists and the prophets throughout psalms and throughout the, the prophets cons consistently questioning God amid their circumstances. Uh, it's almost, they're, they're very blunt. They're very raw in what they're saying. But it's almost this working out of their own fears and their own concerns with God, you know, with His Word, in prayer, in relationship, so that He can begin to conform them to His Word, to His character. And so there's th this, this bit of hope that oftentimes you see towards the end of the passage as they're praying, and you see them gain hope towards the end. And that's, that's kind of what He means by that. And in my experience, I seem to find God meets me most clearly when I finally give up to trying to fix it myself. When I feel like I'm at the end of my rope, when I finally pray to God, which I should have done to begin with. And consider this, maybe this is why we need the trial. Is <laughs> because we don't turn to God. This is why we need it, to drive us from self and back to God. These trials are sometimes necessary to expose me for what I really worship, for what I really trust, for what I really believe. And he's pursuing me to expose my idols. He forces me to decide what I really believe, to put my trust in what I believe. So he also then, in verse 9 to 11, lays out another prerequisite. He says to obtain wisdom, keep some perspective. No matter if you're rich, whether, whether you're poor, whether you're a, a, a strong, uh, long-time Christian or just now be believing, potentially. He's addressing these two different people, and he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Whether that's a poor person or whether that's someone that maybe is just new to the faith, uh, it, it could be either one. But basically, let me think about this. A poor person suffering a trial can lose perspective, um, thinking that God is punishing him uh, or that the world is out to get him. But James says that he should consider his spiritual wealth in that as adopted sons and daughters, we have full access to kingdom resources that God will never, he will meet every need of ours along the way. Matthew 7 says he loves the birds more than us and he takes care of them, right? Right? And so um, recognize this begins to shift our dependence. And trust back to God, seeing that the trial is for what it is, an opportunity for us to grow in Christ. And verse 10, 11 talks about a rich person who is suffering for his faith. That rich person that maybe is out there, uh, a refugee, and, but yet has the financial resources to get rid of the trial, right? And he says, keep perspective. Remember, be humble. Our first instinct is to what? Turn to self, to fix it to remove the circumstances of the trial. And a rich person may have the financial means to do so, to remove the suffering and miss the opportunity to grow steadfast and mature, missing out on the true source of joy because he thinks it is found in avoiding the trial. Now think about this. If he's talking about rich people and poor people, that may be one thing, but he might be just talking about if you're a new, uh, new in the faith, 
and you consider, I'm just a lowly Christian, I don't know much. This is your opportunity. This trial is your opportunity to place your faith in God and see Him work in amazing ways. If you're a long-time Christian, he's saying, humble yourself. You cannot fix these trials. And if you try, you're going to miss what I'm trying to do. Humble yourself. Let yourself go through these trials and look to me as your true source of joy. So, he's kind of shared uh, how we go through those trials, but he issues a warning in verse 13 to 18. And he says... uh, Basically, resist the joy killer, which is sin. That's what he's saying here. We've discussed that in the midst of trials, we tend to turn to self to fix the problem before we turn to God. But now think about this for a second. If I'm coming up with personal solutions, am I ever going to choose suffering? Am I ever going to willingly choose to go through trials? No, I'm going to do anything I can within my own power to get myself out of it robbing myself of the necessary process for growth what's going to rule my decisions regarding the trials it's going to be my desires and my emotions my emotion my my desires are going to say i don't want to suffer my emotions are going to say this hurts i got to get out of it but our desires and our emotions he's saying here unfiltered and lacking god's wisdom and perspective are often the crack that Satan uses to tempt us. Verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his desire. Verse 14 says, Our desires are evil, that they're sinful. There's an inner craving within us, an evil desire. The language here actually says that our flesh is so twisted that we build our own trap, then bait our own trap, unknowingly enticing ourselves to avoid what is best for us, mainly to go through a trial for our good. And verse 13 says, don't blame this on God. God is untemptable. He, there is no evil within him. He is not out here to tempt you. He will allow you to go through trials And our evil desire is the thing that allows us to be tempted. In fact, take heart, actually, because Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus knows what it was like. You remember that he he was hungry, he was tired, he was frustrated out there in the desert, and Satan comes along and starts tempting him. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He knows what it's like to be hungry and tired, overwhelmed, and for Satan to come along and tempt him. And Jesus did not. He resisted the temptation. So Jesus is the one we should be looking to, right? And verse 15 and 16 actually warns us, just kind of goes on and gives this kind of really grotesque language. Gives us sort of this uh, biological imagery that's, that's real vivid. He talks about this unmentioned father of lies, Satan, and kind of bursts this grotesque child, which is sin within us. And then when it matures, it produces its offspring, which is death. The point here is that unchecked sin, unchecked lust for anything above God, yields sin. 
and unconfessed sin brings death. This is, he, he's pointing out this, this birth process because he's wanting you to say it's not an immediate thing. It's a slow slide that happens if you're not looking to me and then boom, all of a sudden you realize this has given forth for, to death. This is serious stuff. This is deadly stuff James is talking about. And it starts with temptation, exchanging the truth for a lie. So, we get into verse 17 and 18. What is the solution for temptation? Satan's trying to kill and destroy, but God is unchanging. He says, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, of which there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our God does not change. He is loving, He is gift-giving, and He brought us forth by His will, and He will complete His work in us. And while Satan is deceiving us through lies, God brings us forth by what? Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of truth is synonymous throughout scripture as the gospel, as the good news of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 says, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when we heard and believed what? The word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. Colossians 1.5 says regarding the hope of what is laid up for us in heaven and our faith in Jesus, we heard it through what? The word of truth, the gospel. So the, 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 the solution for temptation is to be found in a close relationship with the Father. Constantly responding to His word, His life-giving word of truth. That's how we fight sin and temptation. This is the greatest joy killer, sin, and it leads to death. But the gospel, the word of truth, has defeated sin, has defeated death. And, of course, James had witnessed the resurrection. It changed his life. And verse 12 and 18 is just kind of laying out. Listen, the resurrection changes everything. There's this hymn for the resurrection in these that, that, that basically tells us Satan, he, he's saying, listen, this will be completed. You will be resurrected as well. You are living the eternal life. Satan can accuse you all day long, but he cannot convict you. Jesus paid for our sins, and his resurrection proved that work to be done. So listen, as we conclude this, I want you to know, if you get nothing else from this sermon, the bottom line is, trials are good for you. So press into Jesus to find joy in the midst of them. He's allowing it for your growth, for your spiritual maturity, and to complete His promised work in you. Think back to those Jewish Christians and put yourself in their shoes for a second. You have experienced massive persecution. You've lost your home, your possessions. You're struggling. I guarantee you what they were dealing with, they were dealing with the same things we talked about at the beginning. Loneliness, depression, sickness, family strife. Your hopes and dreams have been shattered. You thought you were following God, and it has only brought you disappointment and grief. Now think about what your desires and emotions will say compared to what God's inspired word through James is telling us to hear. In trials, we say, what? I need to fix this. i got to find a way out. But what does God say? Ask for wisdom. I know better. In trials, we say, oh, God, why are you doing this? Curse God, wallow in self-pity. And God says what? 
this is for your good. This is for your joy to be found in me. In trials, we say, lay low, just withdraw, retreat. What does God say? No, abandon self. Make his gospel known. Get out there. Work for God, not because you are working for salvation, but because he's done a work in you. Think about this. The book of James starts saying, you're going to go through trials. It ends with saying, you're going to go through trials. And what's the whole middle of it? Say, live out your faith. Make it known. What do you think is going to happen if they continue to do that? If they actually go and share the gospel and say, I am a disciple of Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's going to happen? More trials. More difficulties. And yet they will find their true source of joy and it will be God glorifying even more so that in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of pain, I have joy. Now why would God's word be any different for us today? It's not. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's still saying trials are good for you and I. And in them, we should look to Him for wisdom. We should count it joy to go through them, knowing it's for our good. And we should not withdraw, but actually go out and share the gospel. Make disciples, showing that faith with works is very much alive, even in trials. I know a small woman that in, in Asia, mother of four. She's been through a lot of trials. Her name is Mrs. Pond. She picks up trash for a living, which is like the lowliest job that you can do in that culture. And she lives in a little shanty behind a little factory. It was an alleyway that she basically, they're basically homeless there, but they've converted it into a little home that her and her husband and her family have lived in for many years. They barely make ends meet. She gives 10% of everything she finds in the trash that might be good to anybody that she can or gives it to the church. She gives 10% of her crops because she wants to tithe and give back to God. Anybody that comes by, they're always hospitable and they, they, they give them hot water and corn gruel when they come in because they don't even have money for tea. Now, one Friday, while she was tending her crops, a group of men noticed her and they noticed that she was the one she was the one that everybody knew as the Christian that didn't worship idols, that didn't worship ancestors, that didn't participate in local customs that were, would be uh, not honoring to God. And they began taunting her, and they began kicking her and throwing her down on the ground, and she kept trying to get up and run away, and these men were all around her. And you can imagine what it was like, just the pain and the frustration as they're kicking her. And, the, and she's trying to get up and run, and she's crying, and they just keep doing this. They did this for hours. They did this for hours and they kept telling we're going to kill you. And she knew that that was possible because they had done the same thing to her husband just two months prior and he had spent a, a couple days in the hospital all beat up and bruised. And after a few hours, they finally got bored and left her alone. I arrived actually on a Saturday morning to, to walk through sort of discipling them as they were trying to become a church in, in their home. 
and uh, their little small house church, people were coming, and, and they began to recount to me. I didn't know about yesterday's events. And so they began to tell me about it, and they're just crying as they're recounting the story to, story to me. And I'm sitting there thinking, God, please give me something to say. How do I respond to this? How do I encourage them? But the whole time they shared with tears, Mrs. Pond would suddenly let out a little shriek of laughter. It was almost like this cackle. <laughs> and it was just odd to me. I, what in the world? And then she'd continue on with the story. And this happened multiple times. And as the story ended, I finally had to ask, Mrs. Pond, I don't understand why you keep laughing. She finished telling me that when she arrived home, they had all been there at the same time. And, and she began to recount that what had happened. And they were all in tears. And mom, mom. And of course, she had blood on her. And it was, you, you could just see that she had been through a lot. What's the first thing the family did immediately after hearing upon? They all ran to the corners and grabbed their personal Bibles. And they all huddled around. And they began to say, what does God's word have to say about this? And all their little highlighted notes and all the things, they were going through it. And they were basically looking at, what has God's word say, say about this? And I'll never forget Mr. and Mrs. Pond telling me this. And they're going through their Bibles and they're... They're trying to say, and, and he said, he, we, would, we would suffer for him here. And he said, but, but he was resurrected here, so he's defeated death. We can have joy in trials here. And they, and they had on these, these little broken type reading glasses that were kind of crooked on their noses because they were connected by a little electrical wire that they had found just to keep them on. I mean, they were that poor. You can imagine this scene. But yes, that was all amazing. But I had to ask once again, Mrs. Pond, though, why are you laughing? And she replied, I haven't been able to stop laughing because the joy of the Lord is welling up within me. Knowing that God wrote these words for me. All those years ago, he was thinking of me when he wrote these words, this word of truth, essentially, is what she's saying. He was thinking of my, my trials when he gave me his word. That day I was reminded actually of the day when we had baptized Mrs. Pond and her whole family a few months earlier. The family had actually, you know the typical things when somebody's baptized and the questions you might ask. The family had asked me, will you ask us one more question? And they wrote it all out for me. So that day as, I, as, as we prepared together to put her under the water and baptize her. I asked the question that they had written out for me. Mrs. Pond, even if people persecute you, beat you, or threaten to kill you or your family, will you follow Jesus and never turn back? To which she answered, I am a disciple of Jesus. I am not ashamed of the gospel. How did Mrs. Pond have such joy in trials? How did she resist temptation under the worst of circumstances? In the midst of trials, she pressed into Jesus and his word to find joy in the midst of trials. She found joy and she grew spiritually, proving to endure. How did I even get to that place? From the crisis of faith and the trials that I was going through, I was just a purely a, a, a worker, a businessman at the time. How did I get to that point that I was planning a church in Asia? Step by step, piece by piece, by 
going through a trial and pressing into Jesus and beginning to grow more and more through those times. It wasn't immediate. It was just over time. Growing more and more to find my true source of joy. So I ask you today, how are you going to respond to Jesus? First of all, if you've never trusted in Jesus, know that whatever trial you're facing, God can bring you everlasting joy and eternal life. He sent Jesus to earth to, to, to live a perfect life for you, to die on the cross for you, and to rise again in victory. And if you turn and follow him today, you will be saved. I'd encourage you to talk to one of our pastors or somebody else in the room. Don't leave without telling somebody what God's calling you to. But if you consider yourself a believer today, God, listen, God is ruthlessly and relentlessly pursuing you in his compassion today by allowing trials to crush your idolatry. He wants this for your good and for your joy to be found in him alone. Find a pastor, find someone, and tell them what God is doing in your heart today. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful to you for your word. For the things that we've just heard today are hard teachings. And I cannot think about the John 6 and those disciples that said that we follow Jesus, and yet, when the teaching got hard, they said, we're walking away. God, help us today to respond to you, to press into your word and find joy. In the midst of trials that are real, they hurt, they're hard. And I don't understand how I'm supposed to find joy, but I do know that your word tells us we will find joy in you and you alone. Help us today. In Jesus' name.